Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our look at the book of Numbers. And here, James Jordan is going to be in Numbers chapters 31 through 36 in a talk titled, On the Move. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Numbers. We come now to the last of our lectures on Numbers, On the Move, Conquest Begun. And here we're concerned with the last six chapters of the book, which we shall overview. A good deal of the material here is detail that we can't afford to try to dig into a great deal, but we can overview the events. And it might be good just to review where we've come in the book of Numbers. We started off with Israel newly created, a census, a new man ready to march out and conquer for the Lord. But when they arrived at the gates of the land of Palestine, they rebelled and refused to go in. As a result, God sentenced them to wander for 40 years. During those 40 years, they rebelled against their leadership, and God supported their leadership and taught them that they could only approach him through the mediation of the high priest under the Old Covenant. Well, the army was reconstituted upon the death of Aaron and was again set forth to go into the land. Again, they fell into sin, but God granted them repentance, and they are now called upon to execute judgment on those who seduce them to idolatry. And so we come in chapter 31 to the Midianite war. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. So this is basically the last event in Moses' life. There are sermons to be preached and laws to be taught to the people, but this is the last geopolitical event that Moses will see. Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And this, of course, is because the Midianites and the Moabites had seduced Israel to sin. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So they were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them, a thousand from each tribe, to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels, probably a reference to the ark, and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. Perhaps not the ark, perhaps the ephod. Who knows for sure? Well, Phinehas is sent along. Of course, he was the one who had executed judgment against the Moabite or Midianite woman back in chapter 25. And so he is the captain in this holy war, at least a symbolic captain in this holy war. He's God's representative. It will be God's war against these idolaters. Well, we come to the battle. They made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So here's Balaam, and he gets his. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones, 
and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. Then they burned all their cities, these are really towns, where they lived, and all their camps with fire. They took all the spoil and all the prey. And they brought the captives and the prey to Eleazar and Moses. Well, now there's a problem with these women because they were the ones who had seduced Israel to sin in the first place. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little children and kill every woman who has lain with a man. But the girls who have not known a man by lying with a man, you may keep alive. Well, you can see what was required here. And the principle that's found here and found in the law is that the culture of these people is exterminated. The Canaanites were to be completely exterminated and wiped off the face of the earth. These cultures who attacked Israel were not quite killed to the same extent, but their cultural continuity was completely broken. There would be no male heirs, and there would be no married women kept alive. The girls would be brought in, and that would be the way in which they were spared, but they would become Israelites completely, and the older culture would be gone. Then we have the problem of uncleanness. You kill people, you come in contact with dead bodies, and that would be a question. If you contact something that's already dead, you become unclean, but how about if you kill something in battle? Well, you do become unclean. And so all these men are to camp outside the camp for seven days, whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain. Purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. And purify every garment that will be by washing, and every article of leather and goat's hair and all the articles of wood. And then they're told that bronze and silver and gold, iron and tin and lead, is to go through the fire and thus be cleansed, rather than by water. Whatever cannot stand the fire, you pass through the water. Both of these come from God and are cleansing things. And you will wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterwards you enter into the camp. All right, so the cleansing takes place after the battle. Now we have a great deal of information about the booty that was taken. And basically the rules for the booty that are set forth here are these. You take all the booty that's captured and you divide it in half. Half of it goes to the warriors who fought, and the other half goes to all the other families in Israel who didn't fight. Only 12,000 men fought, and they're roughly 600,000 men. So you can see if you divide it in half that way, each warrior will get a fairly large share. Each Israelite who didn't fight will get a relatively small share, but everyone will get a share in the booty. God wants the nation as a whole to prosper, and he doesn't want to create a mercenary army. Now, there are tithes that need to be given, and from the warriors, there is one five hundredth of their portion is given to the priests and of the half that went to the rest of Israel one fiftieth is given to the Levites and that's the tithing principle the Levites got ten percent and the priests got one percent in this case it's one fiftieth and one five hundredth the association with the high priest and the warriors 
parallels the association of the Levites with the remainder of Israel. The warriors are engaged in particular holy war, and so they're closer to the priests and to Eleazar and Phineas. Phineas led them. And the rest of Israel are just kind of general warriors who aren't fighting, and they are associated with the Levites who stayed at home and guarded the home front. Well, to round this out, we have money that's given to the tabernacle in verses 48 to 54. The officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, approached Moses, and they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So they took a census. Now, according to Exodus 30, 12 to 16, whenever you take a census or a muster for battle, you have to contribute a tax to the upkeep of the tabernacle. Whenever you muster the people so that there is no plague, then everyone who is mustered will give a half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a contribution to the Lord. And this goes for the service of the tent of meeting, we're told, in Exodus 30, verses 12 to 16. Well, something similar happens here. They take a census or a muster to see if they all survived, and they find out that all of them are alive. And on this occasion, instead of offering a half a shekel, each man offered some article of gold that he had found in the booty. And so it says, We have brought an offering to the Lord what each man found. In other words, each man made a contribution as he was mustered. Articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces to make an atonement for ourselves before the Lord. When you go out to fight a war, you shed blood and there needs to be a covering for that. And so this atonement money is collected whenever they're mustered and here it is. So Moses and Eleazar, the priests, took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, and came out to 16,750 shekels, and they brought it before the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. One principle that we see here and is found throughout the Bible is that the spoils of war are used to build the house of God. That was true in Exodus. The people came out of Egypt with much spoil, they initially used it to build a golden calf, but they didn't use it all. And when the tabernacle was built, then they made contributions of the spoils of Egypt for that. Well, now we have the spoils of the Midianites, and they also go for the upkeep of the house of God. Later on in the Bible, we find prophecies about how the Gentiles and the nations will come into Jerusalem and bring their gold with them and build the house of God. And that's the principle that we see here. The wicked lay up an inheritance for the righteous. Well, that's the Midianite War, and the principles here would be applied later on in many other battles in Israelite history. We come in chapter 32 to the Transjordanian settlement. We find that a couple of the tribes have decided that they'd like to stay in the area that they've just conquered. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a suitable place for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, and then they list the places, that the land that the Lord conquered before the congregation is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and don't take us across the Jordan. Well, that seems an honest enough request. Uh, this looked like good pasture land, and since they were primarily livestock people, they wanted to stay there. 
Moses, however, sees a bad consequence and rebukes them in verses 6 to 15. Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? You're discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land that the Lord gave them. This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to spy the land. When they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land that the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore against them, saying that they wouldn't go into the land, and made them wander for forty years. Now look, you've risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will be responsible for destroying these people. And what Moses sees is that they don't want to go over and fight anymore. They don't want to take the land that the Lord gave them. And this will discourage the other people, and we'll be right back where we were 40 years earlier, where the people don't want to go and take the land. Now, that does not seem to have been the intent of Reuben and Gad. Moses pointed out, though, something important to them, and so they come back with a counteroffer in verses 16 to 19. They drew near and said, We will build here sheepfolds for our livestock and cities. Those would have to be fairly primitive, given the time considerations. Cities for our families. But we ourselves will be armed and ready to go before the sons of Israel until we brought them to their place. In other words, we'll go out and be in the front of the battles. And we'll fight for Israel until we brought them to their place while our little ones live in the cities, fortified cities, because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. But we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. In other words, they say, we'll gladly go over and fight for the other tribes just as they fought for us, but we do like this land and we'd like to keep it. So Moses accepts their offer. If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you will return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do it, behold, you sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Ever wondered where that proverb comes from, be sure your sin will find you out? Well, here it is in Numbers 32:23. So Moses tells them to go ahead and do what they planned. And then in verses 28 and following, Moses talked to Eleazar and Joshua and told them about the situation and left them to enforce it. And then in verses 33 to the end, we find that Moses distributes land to Gad and Reuben and also to half of the tribe of Manasseh. Apparently, once this had been worked out, the sons of Machir of Manasseh decided that this was pretty good too. Maybe they were pastorless as well, and they took the land of Gilead. So at this point, the tribe of Manasseh divides, and we have half of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan and half on the west. And the half on the east is called Machir. It's important to remember that as you read the Old Testament. There will be references to Gilead and to Machir, and that's the Transjordanian part of Manasseh. We wind up with 13 geographical tribes, in addition to Levi, or 14 tribes in all. This land was not part of the original bequest that God gave to Abraham. And the Jews would never have gotten it, except that Sihon and Og attacked them. 
And this gives us a principle that becomes relevant later on in Bible history, and I suppose has some relevance for Christian theories of warfare. It says that Israel is permitted to expand into other lands if they conquer those lands as part of a defensive action. The Israelites were never allowed to engage in aggressive warfare and just go out and conquer other territories that the Lord had not given them. But in the laws for war that are found in Deuteronomy, it says that if you are attacked by someone else, then you can go and fight back. And if you defeat them, then you can enslave them. Here, this indicates that they could also move in and expand into that territory. So that becomes an important principle. The Jews, if they were faithful, they would win against those who attacked them, and their land would expand accordingly. Again, we are talking about the Israelites as God's army, God's heavenly army. We've seen them bring judgment upon Midianites, the enemies of God. This group of Midianites, remember Jethro was also a Midianite. They were good Midianites and bad Midianites. We've also seen how the Israelite host would expand into new territories. Now we have in chapter 33, verses 1 to 49, a review of all the journeys that they had taken. It's sort of a summary of everything in Exodus and Numbers. It lists a whole bunch of places that aren't listed anywhere else. And there are theological ideas here that we can't take time to look at if we were to set this out as a chart. But the primary thing jumps out of the text in the middle. As we look at this list of places, the first several places were told a few details about what happened. It says, verse 6, they journeyed from Sukkoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. That's a detail. And then they journeyed from Etham and turned back to Pi-Haharoth, which faces Baal-Zephon, and they camped before Migdal. They journeyed from before Haharoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. Then they went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. Little details added here at the beginning. But when we get over into the middle of it, there are no such details. They journeyed from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dothka. We didn't read about that before, but here it is. They journeyed from Dothka and camped at Alish. They journeyed from Alish and camped at Rephidim. Then we're told it was there that the people had no water to drink. But from there, we don't have details. They journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hataava. Well, there goes the whole of Mount Sinai without a blink. They journeyed from Kibroth Hataava and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithmah. And on and on and on it goes. Forty-two sites, six times seven, both important numbers in the Bible, and it's possible to study the passage this way. But look what happens when we get down to verses 38 and following. Let's just start in verse 35. They journeyed from Abana and camped at Ezion-Geber. They journeyed from Ezion-Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zim, that is Kadesh. And they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Eden. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the fortieth year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the Canaanite, king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. Then they journeyed from Zalmona and camped at Punan. And they journeyed from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ayabarim at the border of Moab. And they journeyed from Ayam and camped at Dabangad. And on it goes. Well, we're just about done. All of a sudden, right out in the middle, it jumps out at you 
the transition from wrath to grace. The death of Aaron is given a chronological fix, and immediately we're told that the Canaanite heard about it, heard about Israel being there. All those years that Israel wandered in the wilderness didn't amount to anything. But as we saw when we looked at the text, the death of the high priest gives us a transition from wrath to grace, and it enables them to start conquering the land. And the way this is written, you see, the cadence of the text is broken by all this information about the death of Aaron and the immediate victory over the Canaanite, which is alluded to here, and points to the death of Jesus Christ, you see, who breaks the cycle of history, all the places that people camped before, and cleanses the world and enables the Christians to take the world back from Satan. Well, that's the journeys and a theology of the journeys that they have taken. Then we come to laws about dividing up the land, or rules about dividing up the land. At the end of chapter 33, and then to the end of chapter 34, Moses tells the people to go in and take the land, in verses 50 to 56 of chapter 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, well, Moses doesn't tell him, the Lord says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you will drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all of their idols, all their molten images, demolish all their high places, and you will take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. And you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you will give more inheritance, to the smaller you will give less. Whatever the lot falls to anyone, that will be his. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those that you let remain will become pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and will trouble you in the land in which you live. So they're told to take the land and do a total thorough job. The most important thing is to destroy the idols and cleanse the satanic influence out of the land and also to destroy all the people that are there because if they let the people remain, the people will plague them. Well, of course, that's what they didn't do. We get over into the book of Judges, we find out that they did not destroy all the people, and the people were a continuing problem to God's people. The Lord goes on and tells Moses about the borders of the land. Chapter 34, verses 1 to 15, give the borders of the land. And then in verses 16 to 29, a list of men is given who will be in charge of apportioning the land for the inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun will be in charge of it, and they are to take one leader from every tribe to apportion the land. So the tribal boundaries will be set up by Eleazar and Joshua, and then within the tribes, these princes or leaders will be in charge of casting the lots and setting up the various family inheritance plots. Now, the list here doesn't resemble the other list that we've seen at all. It goes Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, Dan, Manasseh and Ephraim, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, if you have a Bible that has a map in it, you can see that this basically goes from south to north. Judah and Simeon are in the south. Naphtali and Asher are in the north. What's curious is that they're paired off. Simeon is actually the most southern tribe. Judah is next and what we do is we go north-south, 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 north-south as we move up the map. So we have Judah and Simeon, and Simeon is actually more south than Judah. 
we have Benjamin and Dan, and Benjamin is actually to the south of Dan. We have Manasseh and Ephraim, and actually Manasseh was to the south of Ephraim. We have Zebulun and Issachar, and again, Zebulun was actually to the south of Issachar, and then we have Asher and Naphtali, which were actually lying right next to each other in the north. And this principle of pairing the tribes is a curious one, but this is a suggestion. It may tie in again with Barnouin's thesis of the astral significance of the censuses, because if you get Barnouin's paper and read it, it's very difficult to read, and I can only recommend it to those who really want to concentrate hard. But his thesis is that the tribes were paired up in terms of their astral significance, and this business of pairing the tribes up seems to come here again as well. How that really fits in with everything else, though, I don't know. We come now to the last two sections of Numbers, Levitical cities in chapter 35 and additional information about inheritance in chapter 36. We're moving into the land, and Moses is giving instructions on how the land is to be set up. First of all, in verses 1 to 8, they're told that there are to be 48 Levitical cities, of which six will be cities of refuge, and then there will be 42 other cities. The cities are to have pasture lands round about, so they're to draw a line from the city in four directions, a thousand cubits, and that would be the extent of it. And if they square that off, then, according to verse 5, there would be 2,000 cubits on a side. And these will be the lands of the Levites. They won't have family property like the rest of Israel, but they can live in these cities, and they will have these pasture lands. Now, more importantly are the cities of refuge that are set forth in the remainder of the chapter. And this is one of the ways in which the Levites would serve the rest of Israel. The cities of refuge are given to cleanse the land when the land is defiled. This is going to be God's holy land, and they'll have to maintain it. But if things happen, if there are murders or bloodshed, then the land is defiled and has to be cleansed. Now, we've already anticipated this by the fact that the death of Aaron, the high priest, made possible for the people to go into the land. But they will have to maintain it afterwards, and the laws for that are given here. Let's look at them. Before we do, though, it's worth pointing this out, too. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, does not say in Hebrew, thou shalt not murder. There's a word for murder, and it's not used. It actually says, Thou shalt not commit manslaughter, or Thou shalt not slay. And it's a somewhat broader Hebrew word that can refer either to deliberate murder or to killing someone through carelessness. Now, the laws that we're about to read deal with those two cases. If we're forbidden to be careless and allow someone to come to hurt, just as much as we're forbidden to deliberately hurt someone, to hurt someone deliberately, but obviously the punishment for carelessness is not as great. It's not possible to apply the laws we're about to read in some simplistic fashion in the New Covenant, but perhaps someone could be creative and come up with at least some type of principle of restitution for accidental manslaughter or carelessness. At any rate, here are the laws. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, this is verse 10, Then you shall select for yourselves cities 
to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. And the cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge to the sons of Israel, and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now, the scenario is this. You unintentionally kill somebody, and his next of kin, who is appointed to be the avenger of blood, is going to come and take your life, life for life, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The avenger of blood is the next of kin, but he is summoned to his task by the land itself which has been defiled. The land is defiled by blood, and as in the case of Cain and Abel, the blood cries from the ground for vengeance. God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries from the ground and cries out for vengeance, and so it is here. And so the land itself or the ground summons up the avenger of blood, who is the next of kin, and the avenger of blood will pursue the manslayer to the city of refuge because he didn't mean to kill him. And obviously in the heat of the moment it's not possible to have a trial. A man might accidentally kill another man, and we'll read an example of it in a moment, and then the avenger may come out after him and seek to kill him when he is not actually guilty of murder. So that's what the cities of refuge are for. It says in verses 16 and following that there is to be no such refuge for the deliberate murderer. If he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in his hand by which he may die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And same with a wooden object. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Or if he pushed him out of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait so that he died. If he struck him with his hand and he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death as a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So there's no refuge for the intentional murderer. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone without seeing it dropped on him so that he died, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. So we have the judgment and the trial. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger. The congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. He shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. The case that's given in the book of Deuteronomy is if two men go out in the woods to chop wood and the axe head flies off of the axe and accidentally kills another man. Now the owner of the axe was responsible to keep the axe head tightly attached and if he failed to do so he bears some responsibility but carelessness is not the same thing as deliberate murder and that's the kind of person who can go to the city of refuge the scenario is that the man runs to the city of refuge and the avenger pursues him there the avenger says this man killed my brother and then a trial is held the levites are kind of like a defense attorney they protect the man the avenger is kind of like a prosecuting attorney and the leaders of the congregation, the elders in the general area, meet together and make a decision. If the man is guilty of murder, 
then he'll be turned out of the city and the avenger can put him to death. If he is not guilty of murder, then he can stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Verses 26 to 28 tell us that he's got to stay there. If the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of the city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, then he's not guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. So the death of the high priest carries away the blood guilt. He is the atonement, the blood sacrifice for the blood guilt that has driven the manslayer off of his land. Now that, you see, is the principle that we've already seen applied in the case of Aaron, and it's also applied in the case of Eleazar. The very last verse of the book of Joshua gives the death of Eleazar, and the theological idea is that the land has been conquered in the book of Joshua, and it's been divided up, but there's a lot of spilled blood and then we have the death of Eleazar, the high priest, and that carries away the blood, and everybody can go and live in his inheritance. Well, verses 29 to 34 remind us that God's land is a holy land, and that's what these laws are all about. The murderer has to be put to death, and that no ransom can be taken for him. He will surely be put to death. It also says there shall be no ransom for the man who has fled to the city of refuge. He has to stay there until the death of the high priest. Thus you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for the blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that's shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it, or the substitute, which is the high priest. Jesus Christ, whose death has cleansed the world and enables us to go out and live in it. Well, chapter 36 closes the book of Numbers with notes about inheritance, we're back to the daughters of Zelophehad, and they have another problem. They've been given the right to inherit land, but what if they marry a boy who is from another tribe? The land would transfer from one tribe to another, and that's a problem. And so the rule that's given is that they are to marry within their tribe. It's important, I think, to notice verse 6. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whoever they want, let them marry to the good one in their eyes. Only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father, so that no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. That's the rule. What I want to call attention to is that the girl marries whoever she wants. That's what it explicitly says. There is nothing in the Bible about fathers arranging marriages for their daughters and forcing their daughters into unwelcome marriages. It just didn't happen. And the girl always had a say-so. I say that because there seems to be a movement afoot in some circles, conservative circles in America, to talk about arranged marriages again. And while for families to encourage children to make arrangements like that is fine and dandy, the pagan view that the father can dictate to his children whom he or she marries is not found in the Bible. People marry according to what is good in their eyes. And you can make that as romantic as you want. Well, that's a good place to end our sand track. The last verse of Numbers says, These are the commandments and the ordinances that the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. And we are ready now to move into the land. All the sanctions have been made. 
And we are told here in the very last chapter that each tribe has a permanent possession and not even a part of the inheritance of any tribe will go to any other tribe. And the inheritance is perfect and preserved. Of course, this is a figure for our inheritance in Jesus Christ, which is incorruptible and undefiled. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.